This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 15th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, David Grimm is here to talk about whales and dolphins that can naturally muffle sounds, potentially protecting themselves from loud underwater noises. And then staff writer Jeff Mervis discusses the future of driverless cars. What can science tell us about how they'll affect our lives? First up, we have David Grimm, online news editor. He's here to talk about a new study that suggests certain sound-sensitive cetaceans, dolphins, whales, you know, uh, (laughs) may be able to protect themselves from loud noises. Hi, Dave. Hi, Sarah. Okay, let's start with this idea that sound can hurt you. I mean, yeah, I've had my ears hurt at a rock concert, for example. But what about a dolphin? What's the problem with them encountering really loud noises underwater? Well, we've got a couple of things. We've got Navy sonar, Mm -hmm. which uh, makes loud noises, but also loud noises in the frequencies that the dolphins and whales are hearing now. One thing to keep in mind with cetaceans is that they can echolocate. And so they have to have super sensitive hearing because the way they sort of navigate and find things is they make these clicks and these clicks can bounce off objects that are up to 20 meters away. And sometimes these objects are as small as a ping pong ball. So not only do they have to click, they have to wait till the click hits that object. They got to listen for the echo coming back from that object to figure out where it is, how big it is. All that requires super sensitive hearing, much more sensitive than you and I have. So Sounds that may not bother us or that may be out of the frequency of our hearing could be really devastating to them. Things like Navy sonar, things like seismic surveys that use these really loud air guns that search for oil and gas. And the problem is that these things, the thinking is, can temporarily deafen whales and dolphins and cause them to lose their way, to strand themselves on beaches. And Navy sonar and oil drilling have been linked to at least 500 
marine mammal deaths since 1963. Okay, so it's almost like being blinded temporarily and like blundering around in the ocean and maybe you're going to end up somewhere not good. So now there are these clues that maybe dolphins and whales can protect themselves from these types of sound by muffling the sound somehow. This seems like kind of a tough thing to figure out. I mean, how can we know a dolphin is hearing something, A, and then B, they're not just hearing the sound, but how the sound sounds, if you get my drift, Dave. For sure. They couldn't do this in the wild, as you might expect. It's, you can't just sort of go out in the wild, grab a dolphin, and strap, mm-hmm. strap some electrodes to his head. Um, even if you wanted to, that's, uh, that's actually illegal. Um, so this had to be done with animals in captivity. And the animals they looked at in this study were four species, a bottlenose dolphin, a harbor porpoise, a beluga whale, and a false killer whale. Which is neither a killer whale nor a false. No, it's not a killer <laughs> it whale. Is, well, it's not a killer whale. It's actually, uh, it's actually a species of large dolphin. Okay. Uh... And all these animals are in captivity. And uh, what they do is the scientists measured the animal's brain activity while they were hearing loud sounds, but not so loud that it would actually hurt the animal. So they kind of approached the threshold. And what did they see in their brains as they heard a very loud noise? Well, what happened is before these loud noises were being played, maybe a somewhat softer noise was being played. And at that point, these animals were somehow able to reduce their hearing sensitivity by about 10 to 20 decibels. Now, that's the equivalent of you or I putting in earplugs. When you say they reduce their hearing sensitivity, they saw like a signature change in their brainwaves? Yeah, it's almost like they had this dial inside their head that they were able to turn down to tune out some of this noise. And the scientists think that they're able to regulate the activity of certain receptor cells, potentially in their ear or their brain, um, and that this allows them to somehow dampen the noise that they hear. Do we know of any other animals that do something like this? So we know that bats, which also echolocate, can dampen their hearing, but they rely on a muscle reflex. And it doesn't seem like there's a muscle reflex happening here more along the lines of actually being able to do something to these receptor cells. Going back to whales and dolphins, does this suggest that maybe sonar isn't so bad for them? Or does it suggest more that, you know, is can we do something with this information to protect them better? Well, we know sonar is bad for them because there's been all these deaths that have been linked right. to sonar and oil drilling. But what it does suggest is potentially if you make sort of a warning sound before, you know, maybe before the Navy does its sonar or before this massive sounds with the air guns, maybe you were to do a warning sound, maybe that would give these animals enough time to be able to dampen their hearing a little bit so when the louder sound started, it wouldn't affect them as much. So kind of like training them? Kind of training them or also just sort of giving them a heads up like, hey, we're about to institute some really loud sounds that might deafen you. So protect your ears, put those earplugs in, Hmm. and maybe these sounds won't bother you as much. That sounds similar to something that's already happening now. I mean, they are using kind of a rising tone in some places where they're concerned about the populations of these animals, right? Right. But we don't know if it works. And so one area for future research is to see whether this actually has an impact. The other problem here is these were done, this was done in captive animals. So we're not really sure that this will translate to the wild. Also, these animals are very transient. So just because you play a warning sound, doesn't mean the animal is going to hear it or that the animals that would be affected Mm -hmm. are the animals that actually are going to be able to have time to protect themselves. Okay, I guess we'll just have to keep our ears open for more research. (laughs) What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, sir, we've got a story about the effect of fracking, the health effects of fracking on infants. 
Also, a story about how out of sync brain waves during sleep could cause memory loss, especially in older adults. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a new survey that we've conducted that shows scientists are surprisingly willing to work with the Trump administration. Also, a story regarding a watchdog group that says the Department of Energy, the U.S. Department of Energy, has illegally withheld research funds. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the online editor for our daily news site. And please stay tuned for our next segment on the future of self-driving cars. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Sierra Club. One of the most exciting science trends in the world today is the shift from fossil energy to clean power, such as wind and solar. The Sierra Club has a new audio series called The Land I Trust that features people telling stories about climate change and how the shift from fossil fuels to clean energy is affecting their communities. You can find the podcast called The Land I Trust at beyondcoal.org stories or wherever you download podcasts. You'll hear stories about a South Carolina mayor moving his city to 100% clean energy, about generations of a West Virginia farming family trying to protect their land from fossil fuels, and about people in Florida and North Carolina who are struggling to recover from hurricanes and much more. There are also five full podcast episodes with more stories about the special places in the South. You can listen to The Land I Trust at beyondcoal.org slash stories or on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Support for the Science Magazine podcast comes from BioRad Laboratories. At the forefront of groundbreaking research, BioRad Laboratories has been advancing discovery for over 60 years. Scientific discovery can be miraculous, but nothing is ever easy. We've all heard and talked about the breakthroughs in gene editing using CRISPR-Cas9, but without the right tools, gene editing still takes a lot of trial and error to get what you want. From flow cytometry to automated cell imaging and counting to tried-and-true transfection, BioRad has what you need for rapid success. To find the many tools available to you, check out BioRad's CRISPR toolbox at bio-rad.com slash define your flow. With BioRad's improved gene editing workflows, you can increase your success using CRISPR-Cas9. You can access ready-made protocols and resources, stay up on current research, and you can even experience CRISPR in virtual reality. Find every tool you need online in the CRISPR toolbox at bio-rad.com slash define your flow. Now we have staff writer Jeff Mervis. He's here to talk about a feature story on what we know about the future of autonomous vehicles. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. What were you wondering when you got started here? What, were you, what questions were you trying to answer? Well, what we were wondering is what do researchers already know? What is there some experimental evidence for that goes beyond pure speculation? There are some people that have done preliminary studies that hint at driver behavior and other issues that are ultimately going to play a big role in deciding how commonplace autonomous vehicles become. I guess one question I keep coming back to is I read this as I read Matt Hudson's piece is 
what is the driver behind this driverless vehicle phenomenon? Who wants this to happen? So there are several issues. One is safety, one is increased mobility, and one is access to transportation of the future. But car makers, in addition to wanting those things, also want to make a lot of money. This is, after all, a technology that is potentially hugely profitable. Policymakers, politicians, are most concerned about saving lives, and they don't want to do anything that would get in the way of allowing companies to develop a technology that they say can save lives. But those two things don't always go together. And I think one of the things we explore in the story is the possible tension between those interests and what researchers can say about all of those factors. So you were looking more at what we can know about the future. You weren't just making spe- you weren't just speculating, you're looking at some early testing and how these cars will affect behavior. Well, we we wanted to see how people went about figuring out what you could learn. Right. Like if you gave somebody free use of a chauffeur-driven car for a week, what would they do with it? Rather than just talking about, well, of course, people will do A, B, and C. Right. Joan Walker, a researcher out in California, decided to actually test it with 13 people from carefully selected different demographic groups. Another scientist, Michael Sivak at University of Michigan, decided to look at the claim that people will have a huge amount of additional leisure time because they don't have to be behind the wheel looking out the window. But he realized that a lot of people suffer from motion sickness. And so he looked at some of the activities that people say they would do and measured what proportion of those are likely to induce motion sickness, like trying to read. But don't you think people already know that about themselves if they're a passenger in a car? They may know that individually, but that's not what you hear talked about at the press conferences, at the congressional hearings, at the rollouts of a new quote-unquote, you know, semi-autonomous vehicle. And going back to what you mentioned before about the car service, this free limo, people used the car more, right, than um, when they had to drive themselves. Right. One overwhelming finding was there will be more driving. What will they use it for is one big question. And people used it to do things that they couldn't do or to do things that they didn't want to do while they were in the office to pick up the kids, take them to soccer practice, to drive in the evening if older people were less comfortable with that, to go visit somebody that is too far away. Uh, So there's a lot of specific types of behavior, and all of those have an impact on the urban environment. Yeah, if people are more willing to get in cars because they can do other things and they don't have to worry about the frustrations of traffic or perhaps sharing transit, Are they going to live further away? That may happen, but it's not clear there may be more congestion. Yeah. If there's more traffic, if what we know is that people will be driving more, then the question is, how will that impact congestion? The optimists say, well, the cars will be able to be much more efficient in how they drive because they will be part of fleets that will be able to keep very close distance. And that may be true, but on the other hand, if there's just simply 
much more volume and people are going to more places, different places, then that could have a negative effect. I mean, the whole idea of deadhead cars, cars with nobody in them at all, not just a driver, but no passengers. If you're going to be sending your car to do an errand without people in it, to the extent you're more likely to do that, that's going to increase traffic even more. Right. So go pick up the kits and come back. And then, you know, one of the questions is, are you going to be sending them on necessary or unnecessary trips? It's one thing to take the kids to soccer practice. It's another thing to say, oh, I forgot something at the grocery store. Go get it. (laughs) Will people indulge themselves and use the cars in a way that nobody thinks are efficient or good for the environment or good for for the society, but yet if the capacity is there, will they do it? And then that, of course, involves how much will it cost? Let's talk a little bit about safety, which is the other big issue here. I mean, yeah, it may change traffic, it may change emissions, it may change daily habits, but what about saving lives? Right. Well, everyone's interested in saving lives, but I think that the conversation about autonomous vehicles sometimes becomes so simplistic, and the equation is Humans cause most of the accidents, get rid of the humans, we will not have any more accidents. Right. Engineers and transportation experts say, no, it just doesn't work that way. For one thing, the technology that's required in order to have a machine be perfect doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And, And no one who has seen their computer freeze needs to be told why the technology isn't always perfect. There's a statistic that one scientist out at um, Berkeley uses, which is that there's a fatality in the U.S. for every 3.3 million hours of vehicle driving. Now, that's a lot of driving. Yeah. So the idea that humans are terrible drivers and that autonomous computer-driven cars will be much better needs to be thought about a little bit more carefully. It turns out humans are actually pretty good drivers. There are some people saying, well, if we train these cars on real-life conditions, they'll get better faster. Well, the question is how safe is safe enough? Right. And that gets into another unknown. There was a recent paper that posited if autonomous vehicles are 10% safer, then they should be allowed on the roads in great numbers. 10% safer than people? Well, that's a good question. Right now, there's roughly 36,000 fatalities a year on U.S. roads. And around the world, the figure is two and a half million. So I think that's what they're using as a metric. But of course, it's impossible to run that experiment ahead of time. What they're saying is that because you need so many millions and millions of hours of driving, you're not going to be able to do that on test tracks that simulate real conditions, and you're not going to be able to do it with computer simulations. And so you need to, as soon as is responsibly possible, to do that, to get them out in the roads. But how safe is safe enough is not really a decision that scientists are going to make. That's going to be made by policymakers. Well, would you get in an autonomous vehicle, or does it depend on which kind? <laughs> I have been in an, what is called a level two autonomous vehicle. The government follows a six-level framework that starts with no autonomy at all, level zero, and goes to level five 
a car can get into under any conditions at any time of day or night and tell it to go wherever you want it to go, whether it's Manhattan or the Gobi Desert. Hmm. So you were in a level two. And the driver took over many times. He assured me this was a university professor, but I won't mention his name, (laughs) that he was doing it for my sake, that I might be concerned that we were getting too close to the curb or too close to another car or that we didn't see the pedestrian. I would have rather had seen what the car could do. Okay, well, I'm searching for a summary here because, you know, it does seem like a lot of research needs to be done to understand the impact and and how people are going to use these things and what they're going to do. What's your takeaway from all of this? Well, I think people should go into it with their eyes open. This is a very powerful technology, but they have to remember that companies have billions and billions of dollars at stake in making this technology commonplace. And so they should know that going in. And policymakers are going to be influenced by special interests. And I don't say that in a bad way, but as in every other issue. I think there's a tendency for people to just assume this is a wonderful, inevitable technology. And the sooner we get it, the better. And I think it deserves our closer attention. All right. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. Jeff Mervis is a staff writer for Science. This week, he writes a feature on what we know about the future of autonomous cars. Also as part of this package on self-driving cars, Matt Hudson writes about why many consumers are apprehensive about these vehicles. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.